Hey, so um, black cowboy, would that be a name to describe you? A black cowboy? Like, how, well, how? you know, I've only been described that in two places. Is that a good description? Well, it's a good description. I love it. But okay. I'm not a cowboy. Okay. I'm a horseman. Okay. okay. A black horseman. Okay. Now, I dress the cowboy style. Okay. But I'm a black horseman. Okay. Yeah. And I remember when I first come out here, there's a brother who was affiliated with the barn I was working for before my injury. His mother turned 100 years old, mm-hmm. and I met her. Before I met her, he is an ex-NFL player, ex-college football coach, mm-hmm. and he had something to do with some kind of coaching recently in his 70s, and his mom was 100 when I met her on her birthday right here at Del Mar. Mm-hmm. He brought her down here. But prior to that, he was at Santa Anita one day, and um, she told him, she said, I ain't going to call his name. Hey, hey, come here. I saw a black cowboy. I saw a black cowboy. Because, you know, I wear my cowboy hat, my pants starching iron, boots shiny, belt buckle, trophy trophy buckles, not no store-bought stuff. And uh, he said he started laughing. He said, I ain't nobody but Kevin. I work with him. <laughs> And when I met her that summer here at Del Mar, she turned 100. And it was such a blessing. That lady called me a black cowboy. And, I mean, I get called that like when I go back on the East Coast, wherever I go at. You know, I I had a, a lady in Florida tell me one time, and she had this deep South accent. I ain't never seen a black cowboy before. And I said, well, sweetheart, you need to get out of this neck of the woods because we exist. Black cowboys do exist. But I'm not a cowboy. I don't do rodeo stuff. I'm a black horseman. But I dress that way. Goddamn right. (laughs) Well, well, I'm tired of the city life. Everything's much too fast. I'm used to the dirty roads. The smell of the country grass The city's so high-tech I don't want to rattle my brain Lord knows I'm a country boy I want to go back from where I came I'm just a good old country boy I still got country mud under my boots I'm just a good old country boy I want to go back to my room I'm so tired of the fast food Raised on cornbread and collard greens Chitlins and hummus And a big old pot of beans Hear the blues on the front porch I loud drink and cuss I'm down home blues Or I'm gonna get back on the bus I'm just a good old country boy Y'all get props, man, riding horses, man. Motherfucker tried to get me on a horse in El Monte, man. They was like, man, just imagine, man. You're a black dude in, the, in El Monte riding on the horse, man. You say, like, you get all the women. You don't even have to do nothing. All you got to do is just ride up on the horse, just sit up and just, just get off of it. Truck on the side of the road. 
Podcast Radio. You're now listening to Blunt Force Podcast Radio. So you born and raised in Texas. And um, how long have you been living in California? I've been here going on five years. Five years? What is it, uh, is there anything other than family? I know that for a fact. Other than family, what is it about Texas that you miss? Well, what I really miss about Texas is the hospitality, the good barbecues, the quarter horse racing. And, you know, I have a little bit of distant family there still. One of my old sisters lives there still. And other than that, that's about it. Yeah. Now, with, with Texas, you got family in West Virginia also now? Yes. My mother is originally from Charlestown, West Virginia. Oh, okay, okay. Where there's a racetrack there. My dad, who trained horses beginning in the late 50s, used to travel from Texas to West Virginia Met my mother, married her, brought her back to Texas, and there was five of us children born in Texas and mm. grew up in Texas. So where did your love from horse racing come from? Well, um, my, how, how, how did that come about? Well, my love for horse racing come as far as I can remember when I was a little child. I have pictures dated back like in 66. I would have made me five years old. I was sitting on a racehorse in the winter's circle with the jockey on one of the horses my dad trained. And then I have another picture where we're in the winter's circle with a thoroughbred horse also that my dad trained. And um, one of the most famous jocks in the country, quarter horse jocks, Kenny Hart, was riding that horse. And my dad is holding me by the shoulders in the picture. You can see I'm walking, trying to walk toward the horse. And I remember asking my dad after growing up, what was I doing? He, he told me, he said, you were wanting to hold that mare because you used, to, you used to go in the stall with her, help me do her legs, rub her legs, do bandages and all that. And she was like your favorite. So that's what you were doing, and I couldn't let you do that. You were too little. I was right. five years old. And I showed you them pictures. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. seen them. Yeah, yeah, I've seen, seen a lot of those pictures, man. It's pretty crazy, man. You, and, and you've been doing that all your life. My whole life. My whole life. My whole entire life. After I learned how to exercise horses, started like at 13 years old, and then by the time I was 16, 
before I got my license, let me backtrack a little bit. Before I got my license, my dad wanted to make sure I was ready. Mm-hmm. And we used to go to what they call the bushes, right. brush tracks, match racing in Texas. And I remember the first horse I rode, he told me how to ride him. Horse named, let me think, what was that coach's name? He's a jet. <laughs> and... um Told me how to ride the horse. I was so light. I weighed like 95 pounds, so I had to ride in an exercise saddle. We're at the bushes, mind you. And I win the race. Mm. And when I took my helmet off in the picture, this was back in the uh, 77 probably. I had an afro bigger than Michael Jackson ever think to have. So when I took my helmet off, and I'll show you that picture in the winter circle. When I took my helmet off, take a picture, big old afro. And after that, Prior to that, at five years old, prior yeah. to that, this uh, the love was already there. Yeah. And then that just opened more doors and made me want to do it more. Well, I can definitely hear it, man. I can definitely hear it, man. So I got the oldest wind picture of my dad was ba- dated back to 1946 mm-hmm. in Del Rio, Texas, Valverde Fairgrounds, where he won a race. And um, um, so that goes back to him from 1946. Who he grew up with it, learning from his other brother, who has my, who I have his namesake, mm-hmm. who unfortunately was killed in a car crash before I was born, and he's the one got my dad into it. My dad had a seventh seventh grade education, but was fluent in four languages, mm. and his love for horses, he followed it. He didn't want to leave home, leave his mom and dad, but. At the age of 14, he left Louisiana, where he was from, mm-hmm. southern Louisiana, a little town called Rain, Louisiana, and moved to Texas to the King to the King Ranch, and that's where he pursued his career as riding, you know, riding races, match races, recognized races, mm-hmm. and didn't ride long because of his weight. He was short. He was five four, but he was thick and heavy, and I mean, after. He quit riding, and when I come up with him, I used to always ask him, when are you going to teach me to ride? When are you going to teach me to ride? And he would say, you sure you want to do this? Look at that guy. Look how he's walking. Oh, broke up jockey or something like that. I said, yeah. So I followed my, my, what I wanted to do, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 yeah I, I hear you, man. And that's why it, it, that's rare that you hear someone that started from the age of five does what he's doing then for the rest of his life. And you know, I, I, I think that's a, even if it was some rough times, hard times. I know it's some damn sure some good times, but uh, that's that's cool. Now, um, now you got a funny story about your name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know this. For my whole like growing up, you know, when you realize what your name is or whatever, I don't remember how old that was when I realized, man, I'm going by my middle name, my first name. On my birth certificate, on my driver's license, on everything else, is Hillary Kevin Mouton. So back in about 2016, I called my mom one day. I was in Charlestown, West Virginia, and I called her. I said, Mom, you want to eat some crab legs? She said, yeah, come on. Go get them and come on. I said, okay, give me a little while. I'll be over there. So I go to her house. And we're sitting there. I get the crab legs ready. I had to crack them for her and this and that. She had she heats the butter up, whatever. And we're sitting there eating crab legs. And I asked her, I said, Mom, now, mind you, this is in 2016. I was born in 1961. And I asked her, I said, Mom, 
Let me ask you a question. She said, what's that? I said, why'd you name me Hillary? And she started laughing. She said, it wasn't me, Kevin. It was your drunk-ass daddy. And I said, what? She said, yeah, it was your drunk-ass daddy. Mm. Your uncle, Bay, was his nickname, but his name was Hill Ray. They were from southern Louisiana. They got different names. Mm. Hill Ray Mouton was his name. And my dad came to the hospital, my mom said, right at the moment after I was born, she was knocked out, and he filled out the birth certificate, but didn't know how to spell Hill Ray. And it came out spelled Hillary. So I've been stuck with that ever since. Hillary Kevin Mouton. And it's been probably the last eight years to where I'm proud of it and expose it, tell people that have known me for a long, long time, look at what my name really is. You know, but it is what it is. Yeah. But my baby brother, Mark Eugene Mouton, Mm -hmm. born March 1st, 1969. My dad went a horse race as a trainer on that day with a horse named Faithful Frank, thoroughbred, a route horse going a mile. I got the old wind picture. And Mark was a big, huge baby, weighed 10 pounds and change. Mom was knocked out. Back then, they didn't have all the drugs they got now and all the technology to help women. It was like, you know, having a baby in the woods. But anyway, my my, my mom said that my dad, Went to the hospital after he got took care of his horse. You know, she had a baby and uh, tried to fill out the birth certificate. He wanted to name my little brother, Mark, after the horse. The horse's name was, was Faithful Frank. And mom says she heard him. And he was drunk and jumped up out of that hospital bed and said, you little drunk man, you're not naming my baby after no horse. He was going to name him Faithful Frank Mouton. But mom put a stop to it. He's blessed with Mark Eugene. Hey, that's crazy, man. man. (laughs) It's the truth. Good old old pops, man. Yep, good old pops. I miss him every day. Been gone 22 years, man. Miss him like he just left yesterday. My best friend, closest person in the world to me. Yeah, yeah, man. He also, he taught you a lot of things, man. You taught, you told me, you taught you uh, your your style to dress. Taught style me my dress. style to dress, man. Cause, uh, you got you got a nice style. I will say this, man. That I, and the only person that I can really honestly say, other than gang members, you keep some gu- nice creases in your pants, man. You yeah, know what I'm saying? All the pants, all all, all the pants that I ever see you wearing, you got a nice crease in them, a tight crease too. They ain't a nice crease. It's a crease where you might be able to cut yourself. Yeah, you, you know gotta, what I'm saying? They in there for a while. Yeah, you got permanent. You got to have that crease where you can put your pants on the floor and then stand up by themselves. And then, of course, you got to have your cowboy boots shine too to go with it. Yes. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? See, I haven't reached that level, man. My uncle told me that cowboy boots are the most comfortable shoes ever. And where I wear them more than I, I do. Haven't, I, haven't, I haven't reached that level, man. I haven't reached that level yet. I, I wear them I, more I reached, than I do tennis shoes. I just shoes. can't see. I don't even like high socks on my legs, let alone a high shoe. So. I don't know, man, but well, it looks good on people when I see them. It looks good, you know. But just as long as you got it covered, you can't be able wearing wearing the boots with no shorts on. No, no, that's you know that's saying? like that's like a yeah. violation, man. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. whether you're working or riding horses or going to a wedding or going to a funeral or going whatever, that's the way I dress. My yeah. cowboy boots, my jeans starched in iron, my suit coat on, my shirt starched in iron. Cowboy hat cocked to the side. That's just who I am, man. Ah. And I can remember back in the day, I was 14, and me and Dad, we used to take the jeans to the cleaners. 
and I think it was like 85 cents to get a pair of jeans, heavy starch back then. Mm-hmm. He got tired when the price went up to a dollar and a quarter. He said, come on, let's go. We went to a damn Kmart. They had Kmarts back then. wasn't no Walmart. And bought me an iron and bought some aerosol spray starch. He t- when we got home, he said, go get your old raggedy pair of pants and practice and learn how to iron. And ever since then, that's what I do. I don't feel right if I leave the house without my pants creased. Whether I'm wearing tennis shoes, which is very rarely, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't feel right if I walk out that door without having my jeans starts. It, it is what it is. Hey, man, ain't nothing wrong, man. <laughs> ain't nothing wrong with me. It looks, looks, looks real good, man. It looks real good, man. Now, um, you also told me at a young age you picked up the love for motorcycles. Now, now, what would you call now? Is that a proper word, motorcycles, or would you, what would you yeah, call the bike that you got? A, a motorcycle, uh-huh. you know, it's a motorcycle. Everybody got different nicknames for them. Yeah, I just call mine Big Girl. Okay, yeah, Big Girl, because okay. she's a cruiser. You can't pop a wheelie on her because she's too strong. I mean, you don't want to anyway. Right. But I've got my first bike. I always had a love for them because when we were kids, we used to ride little mini bikes around and this and that, little kids, you know. Yeah. But I got my first love for a bike watching my favorite movie. One of my favorite. I could call it my favorite, Purple Rain. Oh, uh, no, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, when you Prince didn't say come Purple there, Rain. When Prince, Ooh, that's my favorite movie right there. When, you, 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 oh, no, you didn't say Purple Rain. When Prince come through there Ooh, on that bike, yeah, man, man, I was, uh, I, I went shopping, uh, mm, went mm, shopping, mm. went shopping, and found one that looked almost like it. And I bought that sucker. Now, mind you, I never rode a motorcycle before with the gears. One down, three, four up. Right, right. But I knew how it worked. I rode many bikes and dirt bikes, you know. Mm-hmm. So I went and paid cash for that thing. Back then, you didn't have to have proof of insurance and blah, 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 all that. This was in 84, I guess, when that movie yeah, come out or yeah, something. That was about right. So I drive that sucker out of the lot. And I'm oh. driving through downtown Seguin, Texas on a motorcycle. We didn't have a helmet law. I'm cruising. And I remember going through a parking lot at a grocery store. And a car backed out, almost hit me, and I managed it, you know, got around it. And when I got home to the apartment I was living in, it was it, start, it started drizzling. And when I went to turn into the parking space, that sucker got up, got out from under me and fell down. We crashed just on the side, broke the left turn signal on the front and the left turn signal in the back. I picked it up, said, oh, well, ain't no big deal. Went the next day back where I bought it and bought the replacements. Mm-hmm. And then now, you know, I still ride a bike now. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's just something I like, man. It's freedom. Yeah. You know, when I was in Florida, when I was at Gulfstream Park back in six, the winter of 16 into 17, I would find, I found this back road. I would cruise for about 40 miles, just real slow cruising, looking up at the sky, at the clouds, visualizing pictures, praying, you know, and, and that's, it's, it's, it's borrowed power. It's not like riding a horse. A horse has got a mind of his own. Mm-hmm. A bike is borrowed power, you know, and, but it's something that I enjoy, that I love. And the last time I rode in a group, we are 15, 17, I can't remember. We rode from Charlestown, West Virginia to Greencastle, Pennsylvania, about an 80-mile trip, 90 mm-hmm. miles, and registered there was for the veterans. And then it was, I don't remember what year anniversary that bike run was, but there was over 5,000 registered bikes that registered. We drove back from Greencastle to Martinsburg, West Virginia, 
And that was so cool. But the coolest part of that run was when we made it to the VA hospital. Mm-hmm. And the, the veterans, men and women that were veterans of war, whatever, when they were out there on the, on the street inside that compound saluting us. And us hitting them throttles and revving them pipes up and shit. That was that was so unique, man. And then if you looked up at the hospital unit, you would see them up in them windows saluting us. You know, and that's that's just a love of motorcycles, man. I can't compare them to a horse, though. Right, right, right. There's no yeah. comparison. Yeah, yeah. But it's the second best thing. Hell yeah, man. Blumford Podcast Radio, man. We're sitting here with the great Kevin Mouton, man. We're going to be right back, man. Listen to one of his favorite tracks. Plum for podcast radio.
Going for us podcast radio, man. We are back, man, with Kevin Mutan, man. We're gonna talk about uh when was when is the first time you want that you knew that you wanted to be a jockey? Well, the first time actually was being at the races with my dad, a little kid, four or five years old, and watching them horses run down the track. And I would be in the grandstand, on the rail, running like I'm whipping a horse, trying to run with the horses as they came by. And then what really hit me was there's a, I got a wind picture in my photos of my dad's. 1966, I was five years old, and he put me on top of the horse in the wind circle with the jockey. And that's when I had a handful of comic books. You just showed me that picture, too. Yeah, yeah. I got a handful yeah. of comic books. Yeah. And uh, that's when I realized I want to do this one day. And that's what stuck, man. It's a long, slow learning process. And if you're under a true horseman, a true blue, true blue horseman, that knows natural talent and natural ability, they will help you fulfill your dream. A true horseman will also tell you, you need to do something else. You're not cut out for this. And my dad never did that. And he started teaching me how to gallop and exercise horses at 13 years old. I remember my mom used to, we used to come home and she said, I'm gonna kill you, you're gonna kill my son riding them horses. I don't want him riding horses. and. I used to tell mom, man, mom, that's what I want to do. I love it. And then once I learned how to actually, like, work a horse, breeze a horse or whatever, quarter horses now, I'm like, oh, my Lord, I'm 14 years old, man. I got to do this. And my dad took me through some hard, hard school old knock lessons that he verbally taught me, and then I experienced it. I can give you one example. I used to come home from school. If I didn't have homework... We were on a ranch If I didn't ha- in Texas. If I didn't have homework or whatever, I'd have to change my clothes. That was his rules. Blah, blah, blah. And I'd ride the pony horse in an exercise saddle and a race bridle. My dad purposely one time took the curb strap off that bridle. And this pony was a little aggressive anyway. You know, he was an ex-race horse, but a good horse. But anyway, going around the track, I'm trying to pull him up. When it's time to pull up, I, ain't got, I don't have no control. So he... Take the whole horse gets a little faster, a little faster, a little faster, a little faster, and I'm starting to panic. I mean, I'm 14. God dang, what am I doing here? And my dad, I remember a lesson my dad told me. If one's running off with you because of faulty equipment or it's just the horse running off with you, as long as he's making that course sit still, sit chilly on him, eventually he'll get tired. Key thing was, as long as he's making that course not trying to turn off the racetrack, jump off a rail, jump over the rail, or go through the rail. Stay on him. Eventually, he's going to get tired and stop. And that was a valuable lesson. And that lesson came back to me. I was 14 years old at that lesson. That lesson came back to me in 1989, Canterbury Park, Shacklepee, Minnesota. I'm galloping this thoroughbred horse in draw range. You horsemen, y'all going to know what draw range are. The right side breaks. I reached down very gently and put my fingers in the snaffle bit. Trainer used to use big rings. Put my f- two fingers in there, index finger and the finger next to it, and, and, and tried to balance myself to where the tension on his mouth felt, you know, equal. Man, about after a quarter mile, that slick horse knew that shit had broke and 
threw his head up and stuff, and the whole bridle come off. And he took off with me, and he was a route horse. And we dropped down, he dropped down on the inside rail, and we're running, and I'm screaming at people, loose horse, loose horse. And I'm sitting in the middle of his back, holding on to the mane and the yoke. Bridle them fell off. And we passed the on and off gap on the backside at about the half mile pole, and I passed the outrider. So he chases me. Couldn't had to let him go. We make the far turn. We come down the straightaway, round the clubhouse turn, going down the backside again. Outrider misses me again, and I by this time I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna die. And a guy I don't remember their name. This was in 1989. God mind you, a guy was ponying his wife on a horse. It was a wife and husband team, and uh, he seen me and heard me. I was hollering, loose horse. He turned his wife wife loose and run up to me and caught this horse on the offside and turned him loose. I mean, got him stopped. I'm sorry, got him stopped. And I jumped off that horse. I was shaking. I was so scared, I guess. And that was a lesson I learned from my dad as a youngster. If they're making the course, don't jump off. When you got to finally be a jockey at Los Alamitos, now any of that training... Now, did you think about all of that when you first got on that, that first horse, when you first raced at Los Alamitos? Well, what I thought about when I got on my first horse at Los Al in 1987, and when I got on every horse, wherever I was at, my dad always told me, ride to win, ride like that might be your last race, because it very much could be, because of the danger of the sport. Just ride to win. Anytime you ride, ride to win. And when I came to Los Al in 87, it was kind of like a fluke deal, man. I never, you know, I knew what Los Al was. You know, I'm from Texas, man, riding at Texas. I rode at Louisiana a little bit, you know, Delta Downs and in places, win races. And what brought me to Los Al, you know, at that time, Los Al was the most prominent quarter horse track in the nation, 1987 with a colony of some of the best jockeys that have ever lived. Still to this day, they hold numerous records and milestones and everything. And I was fortunate enough to know some of them when I was in Texas. I would come down there and ride steak races or whatever. But I came out here kind of like on a fluke deal. Back in 1986, when my dad quit training horses, my desire to ride races anymore kind of like went down. And I took over the training on that private ranch. In the fall of 86, we broke horses, broke babies, and this and that. Come the spring of 87, we come up with a big runner. Now, mind you, I was breaking training on this farm. When I come up with this big runner, I had a meeting with the owners and the owner of the ranch, farm, whatever you call it. Told them I want to ride again. And they asked me why. I said, because we got a runner out there. And I want to ride him. But you're training. I said, well, you know, a jockey can only hold one license, but we can run him in your name as a trainer. I do the train, actual physical training here on the ranch. Who the hell's going to know? And then it'd be like program training, what they call it today. And I ride the horses. And, you know, we'd talk finances, percentages, or whatever. So it all worked out on a handshake deal. I wish I would have had a contract written. <laughs> I'd be doing setting a lot better. But anyway... We ended up winning two greatest stakes with this colt and, uh, in Texas. The Graham's Farm Fraternity, 100,000 at it, grade three. The Texas Fraternity, 
Uh, it wasn't that big back then. Nowadays, it's over a million dollars. Run at Lone Star Park, but we went in '87, and I rode the horse. I trained the horse from the ranch. We hauled to the races, you know, blah blah blah. So the owner decided to pay this horse up at the prestigious Los Alamitos. So what their plan was, they got together, owner and the breeder and the guy that owned the ranch. Well, let's send him out there to a trainer instead of us hauling him, which means me doing the same damn thing I did at this ranch and at the races. They decided to send him to a trainer who was successful and this and that. And they said, well, this is what we're going to do. You know, I wasn't included in the meeting, but this is what we're going to do. And then when it comes time to work the horse before the trials, we'll fly out there and you'll work the horse to get used to the race course and... You know, and I said, okay, cool. So a couple of weeks had passed, and I asked him, the man one day, I said, hey, when am I supposed to go to Los Al to work this horse? And uh, they said, well, we come up with a different plan. Now, mind you, I worked for this guy seven years. We would come up with a different plan, he said, me and the owner, and we're going to let this trainer have some good jockeys, which he did, not taking it away from him. And there's a lot of good jocks at Los Al. So we're going to let him use one of his jocks to ride him. I said, okay. I went home, crossed the street on the other side of the ranch, packed my bags up, loaded my car up, went back over there and told him, I said, hey, this is how much money you owe me from percentages, from prior salary or whatever. I'm going to Los Al. Oh, no, you can't go, man. Don't quit. Please, Kevin, don't go. I said, no, I'm going. Why are you going? I said, I'm going to see how good them riders were. I think in that era, it was probably some of the toughest, best quarter horse jockeys in the world. And I give them props for them. But I had to come out here and see. And I come out here and win races and blah, 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 and this and that. I went back home after a couple of months. And the night that horse running those fertility trials, I don't remember what jockey rode him. But I was in the grandstand cheering this coat on because I started him. I win his first four races on him, two graded stakes races, stakes trials and two graded stakes. And that's what made me come to Los Al. The big lights, the city life, none of that ever impressed me. And, you know, it was a good experience. And I think the reason why, the main reason why I left, I just wanted to go be back around my dad, who was my mentor, my best friend, closest person in the world to me. And... Get out of the city. I can't stand the city. Too many people. Hmm. I'm a purebred, purebred country boy. There's nothing wrong with that, man. Nothing wrong with that at all, man. Me, me personally, I'm a city boy, but hey, man, teach his own, man. Um, hey, so I had a big thing with horses, and uh, now I asked you that question. I, I, are horses happy? You know. You know, guy, race horses or any horse in any job they have. They're out of their natural environment. You know, horses are a wild animal. You know, like you got the deer, the bear, and all them other critters running out there in the wild. That's where horses came from. You know, of course, breeding changed. Captivity first, breeding, and then they bred them for specific jobs, racing and this and that. And as a horseman, to answer to your question, to make a horse happy and keep a horse happy, you have to... They're not happy. They're in their unnatural environment. Regardless how many years and generations have passed of captivity and keeping them, they're a wild animal. And to keep them happy, you got to love them, brother. You got to take care of them. You got to pet on them. 
You got to talk to them. You got to congratulate them, whether they did good or bad. You just got to love them. Mm-hmm. And you look at them in that eye. If you know horses, they're going to look at you back in the eye for a split second and know that they appreciate you. And then they're happy like that. Mm-hmm. But if you miss it, and it's not called mistreating one. If they're not happy, it's just the fact in the last 20 years or so, maybe, yeah, horsemanship is almost like no longer required. People hire people off the streets that have never worked with racehorses or any kind. I don't know anything about the other horse businesses, but have never worked with racehorses. I've been in barns exercising horses where they hire people that can't even lead a horse proper and grooms that don't even know how to care for a horse proper. Back in the day, before you, when you went to a barn to apply for a job as a groom or whatever, hop, walking horses or ponying horses or whatever, if you didn't have experience, they saw you had the, the desire to actually work with horses because of the horse, first of all, not because of a paycheck. They would give you a shot, but you started from the bottom. You had to prove yourself. Today, you go in any of these barns out here, trainer that I worked for last, millions of dollars worth of horses in his barn. He got people work, walking horses that come straight out of the onion fields picking onions or straight out of a restaurant from being a waiter or a waitress walking millions of dollars worth of horses. And the owners don't have knowledge of that. They're not horsemen. Yeah, yeah, I, I can understand that because just because of the people that I know, I had the opportunity to be something like that. But, man, I am not messing with them horses, man. Didn't you tell me that they try to load you in the gates to start it and handle the horse and you never touch a horse in your life? Yeah, it 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 only lasts like two uh, maybe 30, 30 minutes. (laughs) 30 minutes. No, I can relate. It wasn't for me. Now, think about this. Think about this. In my position, when I was still exercising horses, galloping horses, working horses, whatever, up until two years ago, until this freak accident happened to me that put yeah. all that on hold. You got a person, you got a high-strung horse underneath of you, and you got a person that's never handled a horse, and this horse is wanting to rear up, and this person is wanting to battle the horse. Who's going to win? Hey, man, I see that all the time. I don't understand how the horse don't win. And who's on back? I the man. I don't understand. The hey, man, man or the hey, female? Look, I'll put it like this, man. That horse don't understand how powerful it is. Really, I, I don't think so because I see the littlest of the littlest motherfuckers walking horses, and I don't understand how the hell, man. If that horse veer up, man, I'm letting that motherfucker go, man. Hey, man, that motherfucker <laughs> tried to piss on me, man. I don't know what the fuck happened, man. Yeah, hell, nah, but man. Yeah, you know, and it's a shame on that part. I get mad. And... I get mad. Props to to people that work with horses, right. handle horses. I do too. Any type of. If you deal with horses, I give you mad props, man, because I could not do that. But the only part I despise on that, as far as everybody that works with horses, I wish you would go back to the old days to where you had to be experienced for each job, man, or learn, start from the bottom and get experience, not just show up at a barn and one of the assistant trainers or foremans, they call them nowadays, put a lip chain on a horse and show you how to walk one. You've never led a, any kind of horse in your life, and here you're leading this high-strung racehorse. I don't believe in that, man. It's just, hmm. you know, I remember when I was in charge of breaking babies down in, in a place in Kentucky. Wintertime, we would go to Florida. Hired a guy. His primary job was a Wendy's, worked in the drive through window. They had little riding horses at their house, so, of course, he, it looked good. 
when he talked to the main man in charge that he had was knows her horses. Gave him a brush box with leg paint, leg medicine in it, and some bandages. Mm. Within three days, there was a couple of babies bowed because of the bandages. And same time, there was one or two halfway getting blistered because of mixing medicines or whatever on their legs. And that's the kind of thing I despise from the way I come up. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And you can just look at people on the backside. You got people, these are racehorses. You're at a racetrack. You got people wearing big old concrete, wearing construction boots and stuff, back there leading your horses, walking horses. You got women, a lot of women. I'm not saying all of them now. Don't get me wrong. Can't even walk to get out of their own way, leading these million dollars worth of horses with a lip chain on them. Pull, and what? I don't get that part of it. Why? Mm. I don't know, man. It's, it's crazy, man. It's crazy, it's man. Really uh, crazy. But I, I, I know for sure, man, that these people have a strong passion for a love for these horses, man, to be able to get up every day, rain, sleet, or snow every morning and take care of them horses, man. You've got to have a passion to do, lot, do something a, a like that, man. A lot of them do, guy. A lot of them do. And I know some of them probably treat like a job. You know, some right. people well, just... Well, the majority mm. of them, since, and I paid close attention, even especially since I've been out in here in California, the majority of them, it's for a paycheck, man. Yeah. They don't have no passion for that horse. They come to work mad in the morning. They leave there mad in the afternoon. Some of these grooms don't even take a half a second to pet on a horse, tell him good morning, thank you, good job, give him a carrot or whatever. It's just like a job, a paycheck. Hmm. You can see their like their mentality while they're working, and then day is paycheck day. You see a different person. And that's the sad part, man, for the horse part. Yeah. That's when you see that eye on that horse. They know. Yeah. They know. That's crazy, man. Yeah. I'm definitely going to pay attention to, to the eye on the horse next yeah, time I see it, man. Truth, man. Definitely, One day man. walk through there with me, and I'll show you, man. Hell yeah, man. And we, we can go to any given barn and just watch. Just stand back and watch. You can watch the majority of grooms walk down through there. They do their thing with their horses, blah, 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 the way their trainer has them do it. Blah, blah, blah. They might chain one up to the wall. It's 4.30 in the morning. Poor horse don't go to the track till 9 in the morning. They had a drink of water. Might want to lay down or anything. They don't even, that, I mean, it's, it's different. Mm. The horse mm. always came first. Not make your job easier. Right. The work's not easy, but make your job easier. So the horse doesn't come first in most circumstances from what I've seen. And I've been under the barn, the roof some of the most prominent horse trainers out there in this world today but i've seen it yeah. i've seen it well, that's that new generation man we definitely gonna talk about that more man coming up in this next 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 few minutes man blunt Force podcast radio man we right back
Buffalo's podcast radio, man. Um, trying to figure out, man. Hey, I asked you one question, man. Uh, one time, and you just made me laugh, man. Uh, I asked you, is there anything you could see yourself ever doing anything other than dealing with horse racing or in horse racing? And man, it's like you had a, a serious headache from that question, man, because you was just intensely telling me, like, no, nah, God, like, I, I don't know, man. I just, I just couldn't do. It. I, just, I, I just can't see myself doing anything other than horse racing. So. Is is that passion still there? Is there anything else out there that you can see yourself doing other than horse racing? To be honest with you, guy, no. You know, and I experienced that something outside of, very far outside of horse racing. Back in the year, I think, 1988, I was married at the time, had my little son, and had a, had a great year before then, good year before then. After that, had a bad year. And uh, my wife, ex 
wife at the time and her mother, they talked me into uh, leaving the horses alone, getting away from the horses, getting a regular job, as they called it. So I'll never forget it. I went to work at a Kmart warehouse and ended up always in trouble with coworkers, supervisor, ended up not being happy at all. And I remember I would get this, got this first little paycheck after two weeks' pay, and I almost cried. You know, it was so small and this and that. And took it home like the good little husband's supposed to do, you know. Next week, went back to work. After about two days, I said, the hell with this. I went to the racetrack, started galloping horses. Hmm. Racetrack was about an hour away. And instead of bringing the paycheck home the next two weeks, I brought cash home, told my wife at the time, hey, I needed gas or whatever, and uh, here's the rest of the money or whatever. So that went on for about a month. I was getting on horses, and people were asking me, Kevin, you going to ride again, man? We'll ride you. We'll ride you. And I said, no, I can't, man, but I want to gallop horses. Man, one morning I'll go out there huh. after about a month, and I'm on this horse going down the track, and who do I see standing on the rail? My ex-wife and my ex-mother-in-law. I almost fell off that horse. That ruined it. That ruined my marriage right there. But anyway, you know, that's the only time I actually tried doing something because it was like I was forced into it. And as we speak now, because of a freak injury that happened in 2020, I'm away from the horses right now. And it's not its not my life. I mean, when I quit riding races officially back in 95, I worked as a racing official. Two different race, three different racetracks in Texas, Texas actually, as assistant race secretary at two tracks, had every job in the racing office except for bookkeeping, you know, like from stallman, clocker, entry clerk, clerk of scales, whatever. And um, it was good because it was racing. The worst part of that job was being a clerk of scales, watching them horses run down that racetrack, standing on the rail by the scale. And me not being out there, but I could talk. I did that. I could tolerate it. And like I said, unfortunately, right now, you know, I'm not to to eat to survive. I'm working totally away from the horses. And nah, you know, I did the racing official thing because I knew one day Father Time would catch up with me, where I couldn't break and exercise horses no more or whatever, and I I needed something to fall back on. And my dream was to become a steward one day, and I did get letters of recommendation. And that's when my dad got sick, and I took the time off to take care of him over a couple of years. And when he passed on, you know, I just, my mind went, you know, being honest, my mind went. And I just got away from reality and the world for like five years, five, six years. And then finally, you know, I snapped and come back with the horses as an assistant trainer, blah, blah, blah. Tried to ride again back in 2007 and win a couple of races at Ridoso, you know, but it wasn't the same. And, but I still want to be affiliated with the horses. You know, I've got experiences managing, breeding farms, breaking farms, you know, can do anything with them and not too proud to do anything with them. So, nah, in answer to your question, no, I can't see myself doing anything else without horses. That's my sanity, brother. I hear you, man. I hear you, man. Now, you also, man, a great, great cook, man. Uh, and you're known for that around, 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 around horse racing, uh, at least around these parts out here in California. So, 
And, and and you touch a lot of people, man, because the food that you cook out here, they don't really get. Because you cook a lot of soul food, a lot of, a lot of barbecue. A lot of, you, got, you got a smoking pit. I mean, not a pit, but you got a smoker. You know, a pretty big smoker, classic smoker. I've never seen one of these smokers in the stores out here. You know, so, and... Uh, it's the first time they taste food like that that you that you cook. So uh, and and you able to reach a lot of people with that. And it's pretty hilarious to me because we've had a lot of stories, a lot of funny stories that we gonna share. But um, yeah, man. So let's talk about you your your cooking and and how that reaches people. Like you've reached people from different countries with your food and you know, that 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 came here and just sought you out. Trying to figure out, hey man, what are you cooking? I've heard about your cooking. So how you became such a good cook? Go ahead. Okay. I can remember, at about 14, I'd come home from school, and my dad, I got to go back to him. That's my main person in the world, second to Jesus only, to God only. My dad would tell, ask me the same questions. They would be done training, you know, with the horses or whatever, and he'd ask me the same questions. Hey, um, you got home? How was school? How You got homework? No, whatever. Okay. Get out of your clothes, your school clothes. I started some stuff on the stove. What I want you to do is turn the stove on medium heat, stir it up once it gets a little warm, and taste it. Then you make sure you take that spoon and rinse it off before you put it back in that pot. And I got some seasonings on the counter. Add a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Stir it again, taste it, rinse that spoon off. So that's how I learned how to cook. And then he would... as far as the racetrack barbecuing goes, we would have to haul. He trained off of a ranch. Mm-hmm. So we would have to haul every weekend to the races. And what he would do the night before, he would marinate a big old pig butt or a deer roast or something mm-hmm. and work on that sucker and cook it in his oven real slow, mm-hmm. wrap it up good and full, put it in an ice cooler the next morning. We take it with us when we travel Friday after school to the races for Saturday and Sunday. We get the horses unloaded. Of course, he was very, very clear about taking care of his horses. You know, he did that first, but then he'd fire up that barbecue pit, and it would bring all the rivals, people that you had to race against or whatever over there to eat with us. And I I used to watch that. when we got to race against him tomorrow. My dad would say, that's okay. Let him enjoy some good food. So that's how I learned how to barbecue because he would do that. Mm-hmm. So then I started doing it wherever I went. I'd get me a, If I didn't have a pit, I'd buy me a pit. Mm-hmm. And when I come to California, I ate barbecue at a couple of different places. And I say, you got to be kidding me, man. So inexpensive. So I say, you know what? I'm fixing to start cooking. So, man, I started cooking, and a lot of my friends and co-workers, you know, from down south, Mexico, Guatemala, Southern America, wherever, people from Ireland, um, people from Canada and this and that, I would invite them. And they're like, oh, my God, man, this is so good. What is this? I said, it's just pig ribs, pork ribs. I got the collard greens, the potato salad, home secret I'll never give out. My baby sister and my mom would kill me if I did. But, um, and then I started, you know, before then, prior before then, years before, I started experimenting on my own on the ribs. And I, I love doing it because I love seeing satisfaction on people's faces from eating a good meal. Um, I can remember one time here in California, uh, in uh, summer of 21, 
here at, down here at Del Mar. My cousin, Dr. Patio, Nolton Patio, veterinarian here, he funded barbecue or two. Mm-hmm. And he said, cuz, I'm going to invite, we call each other cuz, I'm going to invite certain people. I said, I don't care how many you invite, whatever, it's done. And there were people at this one barbecue from, we're going to go by job description from the bottom up, from hot walkers, from night watchmen, I should say, hot walkers, grooms, uh, exercise riders, jockeys, trainers, owners, stewards, veterinarians. There was a group of people from Almost all categories. Mm-hmm. And uh, enjoying the meal. The chaplain was there. And after everybody was leaving and this and that, chaplain come up to me, put his arm around. He said, Kevin, you know what? You cook a great meal here, but you got a talent, man. I said, what's that, chappie? He said, you got a, you got a talent of bringing people together. I was just looking at people here. He knows everybody on the racetrack. You got somebody from every group here. I said, you know what? The best part about it for me was mm-hmm. I love the satisfaction that everybody enjoyed the food. They've eaten food that they've never had before. That's what I got to be. I remember that one. Is this the, that the one? I remember you had the... Uh the the people that won the, the Breeders' Cup, the uh, what was that, the Japan Cup? Yeah, yeah, uh, the, yeah, yeah. No, the Japanese ja- people. Yeah, I remember you had them at the at the Thanksgiving. That was Thanksgiving that hey, same man. year in the fall. Oh man, but they 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 killed that plate, man. They they do. I they picked. They, I told them to get everything on there. I, I walked with them and made sure they had everything on their plate, from greens to candy yams to to the, <laughs> to the fried turkey, the potato to the salad. dressing, the potato salad. <laughs> Uh, all you know, whatever uh, green beans, and they man that that paper plate was dry. <laughs> that paper plate was dry, I boy. That. And, and man, they 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 enjoyed that food, man. They ain't never had nothing like it, man. They enjoyed that food. There was no, it was just that was love right there, man. That was man. I, I remember that when 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 the person that asked me. She's one of our regulars at the barbecues all the time. I call her Bean Lady. She brings the beans all the time at the barbecues and love her and her husband to death, believe it or not. But anyway, uh, she said, hey, Kev, let's do Thanksgiving again because we did it the year of 20 here at Del Mar when COVID was going on. And we fed probably 45 people first time ever deep fried turkeys. Yeah, my daughter was there for that yep, one. Yep, guy's yeah. daughter was there, sure enough. Yeah. And then, um, so we did it the next year in 21. And uh, she said, I got these people from, from Japan here, got these horses in the Breeders' Cups. And they ended up winning two of the Breeders' Cup races, I mm-hmm. think. And they've never had an, a traditional American Thanksgiving dinner. But yep. I said, bring them. And I think it was like four of them, and three of them didn't speak a word of English. I don't remember what their jobs were, whether it was a trainer, exercise rider, groom, or whatever. But there was one that was a translator. Mm-hmm. And we had the food yeah. laid out. We had yeah. a layout. We had yeah. a layout. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we went from the deep-fried turkeys, the sweet potatoes, the dressing, yeah. the greens, everything you could have, the baked rolls, yeah. everything. And... My man Guy here was showing them what to get and on their plates. And they would say, they would talk in their language, you know, and the translator would say, hey, he want to know if he can have another plate. I said, yeah, let him eat. There's plenty of food. And that was such a blessing to see somebody from another country besides mm-hmm. South America, any, anywhere south of the United States, mm-hmm. eat something that you cook that they really enjoyed. 
Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I just only thing I hate about that that I, that I wish would have been different that they would have attended one of the barbecues because right. that's my specialty that barbecue. Yeah, it's been been been, been quite a few and of I've those touched too. Quite man. a few people with yeah. it here in California. And, and it's always that special mark when you got to pull the bone right out the meat, man. I ain't never seen nothing like that, man. <laughs> bone, y'all you know, like watch this guy. Check this out. Make sure you get this on video. <laughs> Oh my God! You remember that? Yeah, that's, you, what, that's what Hector. You and Hector. <laughs> Hector. Yeah, you go to my Facebook Hector. page like, and see that oh, video. Oh my God! Oh my God! That's all you heard Hector saying. Yeah. Oh God! You gotta try this. You gotta try this. Yeah, man. Good times, man. Yeah, man. That cooking, man, and touched a lot of people, man. Like I said, man, a lot of people out here don't don't get that food, man. You know the response, man. We was laughing at dude. Uh, he was making some ribs today. He ran away. He he had one rib. Mexican dude, one rib. You gonna tell him? You gonna go and make fifteen tacos for that? <laughs> And then a guy remember, like ten minutes later, he clocked out and he was leaving. And I, you were, you were so doing something on your phone or something. I said, look, he was driving by, sucking on the bone. Ten minutes later, hey, it was one rib. You say you gonna make fifteen tacos with that joint, man? Oh man, have you dying laughing, man? But like you know, they never had ribs before, man. So they, you know, just. It's just amazing to me, man. And I was the same way with, with other with other foods out here, man. You know, a lot of things I ain't never had before. So I know, I, especially I reacted like that with carne asada. <laughs> I had carne asada for the first time. Well, I wanted to tear the whole meat up, man. I would, I would bring all that to the house, You man. remember last summer when we had that barbecue here? It was God bless him. God, I was peace. in love with carne asada. God bless him. Rest in peace. Our brother Keith. Yeah, man. the horseman and the groom. He helped me cook, and we had another brother, Stephen, and I had my pit going. We had three pits going over here, out here. Last summer, over 100 people showed up for that barbecue. Made, I don't know how many different side dishes or whatever. Yeah, and me, beyond honest with you, I think I cooked 13 slabs of ribs. I believe you did. And I yep. didn't eat one rib. Because I didn't want to run out of food, I watched the satisfaction on people's faces. I know you're mad, though. Oh, uh, you know, I just... Uh, a little bit. I mean, a little a bit, little, you know. I had, I had some scraps left over, <laughs> you know. And then I'm, I'm watching uh, Brother Keith. May you rest in peace, man. Yeah, And man. Uh, cooking, enjoying what he was doing, Stephen. And I'm thinking, these brothers like this just as much as I do, you know. Yeah, and then man. the satisfaction on people's faces. I mean, we had people show up here I ain't never seen before. Yeah, they was deep. It was. It was, it was, they was deep. Out we, nowhere. I went coming to the maintenance nowhere. department and got a bunch of tables. That was amazing. And chairs and set them up. Three grills going on. That, yeah. that, that was. It was. It was popular. It was going down. Plus a miniature grill. Yeah, we, we smoked had a little up. mini grill. Yeah, that we was smoked. cooking steaks. Exactly. In, we in, smoked up in the up. middle. In the middle of it. We smoked up the whole city of Del Mar. Yeah, man. I was. Yeah, that's that's, that's what that's, yep. that's what the cooking doing, man. Brings all everybody together, man. When we weren't able to do that last year, and I think a lot of people. We're kind of down about that. Yeah, you know, well, uh, that's for the Thanksgiving thing because yeah. I caught COVID yep, yep. on November 21st, and I yeah. wasn't able to cook. We had, we were planning it, but it didn't happen. We did Hell it in 2021 yeah. and 22. We couldn't do it because I got sick, and I had people bring me food, you know. But um, like today, guy, when I threw them ribs, when you told me you were coming. Yeah couple of days ago i said you know what i got a slab in the freezer i'm gonna throw it in the pit what you thought about them ribs today hey man it was delicious <laughs> delicious yo i was i was in hell I was, I was in heaven I, was, I forgot i was off today i thought i had to go back to work man. It was so good, man. i ain't even gonna lie man 
But yeah, man, the cooking thing is cool, man. My guy Keith, shout out to my guy Keith, man. Rest in paradise, man. Rest Keith, in peace, brother. Keith was a different character, man. I, I, that was my guy, man. In California, he passed away October nineteenth of two thousand twenty-two, yeah. uh, a couple of days before before my mom passed away. Yeah. And man, that brother, man, he used to tell me stories about the Bible. It was just different, man. He made it, he made it a point where all the characters in the Bible were black. You know, he would always say. You know the reason why only, only black people do stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? And don't know, don't know why, uh, why other other people think the way that 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 someone people ask in the Bible. You know certain stories, the reason why they did stuff. You know that the the way he just ex- described the Bible to me it was just different, man. Maybe want to read it. I wish I would get him on the podcast to tell some of his stories, man. Right. But he had right. other stories, man. He was a funny dude, man. Hilarious dude, man. Had a great laugh, man. A laugh that just. You'll never hear another laugh like that one, man. His laugh was, was man, boy, it was. He had a beautiful laugh, man. Uh, yeah, beautiful we, soul. You know, he went through his drama back in his days, but you know, we all get older, man. You know, start seeing a little clarity in with life, and so, yeah, man, that was my that was my guy, man. He was the only brother, really, only black dude I connected with in California. You know what I'm saying at that time, man. So, yeah, he comes with me every time, man. I got I got his I got his paperwork in my in my podcast bag, so. Um, yep. he always, he's always with me, you know, uh, anytime I do a podcast, cause I always wanted him on the podcast. So rest in peace, man. My guy, Keith, man. Rest definitely. Rest in peace, Keith. Definitely, God man. bless you, brother. Hell yeah, man. So, um, the, the changes, man, now we get to the end of this thing, man. This new generation is changing times. It's going on from when you was, from back then to now, man, as far as horse racing. What's, what what do you think, man? Where, where we at right now, man? What, what do you think? I know it's different over here than it is on the East Coast. It's different um, across the nation, man. So, how, how do you feel about horse racing? I think horse racing will survive as long as horses keep living. And they right. keep having, the mamas keep having babies. Yeah. Horse racing's never going to end. Horse racing was known as the sport of kings. Mm-hmm. Still is. It'll never end. I would like to see some old school stuff come back as far as horsemen. Mm-hmm. And just let it continue, man. It's a beautiful sport. I mean, there's nothing like it. And then when you're hands-on, regardless what barn you work for, work for whatever your barn, whatever your job is in that barn... Just be a part of that horse, not that paycheck. When that horse goes out there and performs, be a part of that horse. Root and cheer for him. If he wins, congratulate him. If he loses, congratulate him. Make that horse happy, man. That's what racing is about to me, making that horse happy, brother. Hell yeah, man. Definitely, man. End it with that, man. Come for a podcast radio, man. Let me tell you something, girl, I've been trying to say now. You look so sweet and you're so doggone fine. I just can't get you out of my mind. You've become a sweet taste in my mouth now. And I want you to be my spouse so that we can live happily now. Come on.
Like 